Section 8 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 8, May 24th to June 1st, 1915. May 24th. Perfect day after 10, very heavy rain earlier. My job to draw supplies from Main Supply Depot for Division. Rotten job, which starts at 6. Brigade not moved. Here the Italy has definitely come in. This closes a channel of supplies into Austria and Germany, and is bound to tell in a few months. Japanese bombshells experimented with in Australian trenches at Gaba Tepe. They are fired by a trench mortar and have a range of 400 yards. They have a small propeller to keep them straight and explode with great violence, blowing trench to bits. The first one tried fell beautifully in a Turkish trench at 200 yards range and exploded with great violence. Turks started kicking up a fearful row, and about 50 rushed out like a lot of hornets. Machine gun turned on them and scotched the lot. Great request now on our part for Japanese bombshells. News now arrives that two submarines from Germany have got into the Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar, and that they are making for this part of the world as hard as they can go. Most of the fleet and transports in consequence move off at nightfall for Lemnos Harbor, off the village of Mudros, where our transports concentrated before the landing. Looking out to sea from the beach, the feeling of loneliness engendered by the departure of the shipping is curious. Yesterday I looked seawards, and the ocean was dotted with warships, transports, etc. Pinnaces darted to and fro. All was hurry and bustle, during which one had a comfortable feeling that at our backs were our naval comrades, ready to help at a moment's notice. Now less than half the shipping lies off the coast than did a week ago, and a feeling of loneliness almost of fear, comes over me. Hindu as well as Sudanese laborers now working on the beach. All the time they are carrying anything on a cart, with six pushing, one of them, evidently in authority, walks alongside, laughing and gesticulating, singing something in a Gregorian chant, to which the others answer by singing three words in a monotone. This goes on all the time, and causes much amusement to the Tommies, who of course imitate, whereupon the coolies laugh and sing all the louder. We have now built a bivouac of boxes on the cliff edge, the right side of the beach looking towards the sea, and from there we obtain a fine view of the scenes on the beach and the road below at the foot of the cliff, which is gradually being widened, built up, and extended round to X Beach. May 25th. Woke up in our new bivy this morning. It is very nice up here, overlooking Imbros. From my bed I can see the Swiftsure fire a shot into the water. I get up at once and, looking through my glasses, see her fire another, this time between the Agamemnon, which is moored close by, and herself. Torpedo destroyer comes dashing up and immediately makes big circles round the two ships. A tiny little pinnace slips out with only four sailors on it and rushes round and round the Swiftsure like a little pup defending its mother. A bugle sounds several times, and men in white swarm out from all kinds of places and stand to stations on the decks. A submarine has been sighted right among our shipping. 
It had darted like an evil fish between the Swiftsure and the Agamemnon, and the Swiftsure had kept it off. At one o'clock, news arrives that the HMS Triumph has been torpedoed off the Australian landing at Gabatepe, and it is a terrible shock to us all, coming as it has so soon after the sinking of the Goliath. A good many lives were saved, nearly all the crew. No doubt it was hit by the same submarine that attempted to finish off the Swiftsure and Agamemnon this morning. We are all naturally anxious at further developments. A Turkish battery is shelling the aerodrome on the east side of W Beach. Some very good practice is made, and one machine is damaged. This afternoon the same thing starts, and one shell pitches into the sea. If they move their gun five degrees right, they have the range of our bivvy nicely. May 26th. It is another perfect day, and it is absolutely ideal at our bivvy on the cliffs overlooking the southwest tip of the peninsula. The sea is perfect, yet while admiring the view we hear the old familiar whistle of a shell, and one comes right over us, plunk, into the sea. Another soon follows, and we have to go beneath the cliffs, and our aspect of the peaceful view is immediately changed. Shelling lasts half an hour, and after lunch we can come back. Go up to Brigade Headquarters this morning, and find that South Lancashire Division have been merged with the 29th Division. Laird, quite fit and chirpy as usual, in a topping little dugout nearby. Reinforcements arrive today, and I show them the way up. One chap asks if there is a chance of his getting into the firing line. I answer that he will be in the firing line in half an hour. And, poor chap, he looks queerly at me. He will get used to it, though, in a day. He asked the question as if to show that he was longing, after months of training and waiting, to get there, but had rather a shock when he found it was so near. Flies, ordinary house flies, are beginning to be awful pests here, simply myriads of them. People in England do not know what a fly pest is. They make a continual hum as they fly round. There are so many of them. One of our officers named Jennings gets very annoyed with them, and when trying to get asleep in his dugout of an afternoon, has a few minutes' indulgence in hate, not against Germany, but against the flies, murmuring to himself, got strafe the flies over and over again. Ritchie, my old honorable artillery company pal of the Goring days, who was on the Arcadian, turns up at Supply Depot and invites me to dinner in the near future. It does not seem so very long ago that we were having a pigeon-pie dinner in our barn at Stoke-on-Thames, when we were both gunners in the Honorable Artillery Corps. Late in the afternoon, shells come whistling over our bivouac once more, well overhead, and burst in the sea near to supply ships. About fifteen come over, and the transports weigh anchor and clear out of the way, taking up moorings again behind the Majestic, which is lying about a thousand yards off the center of W. Beach. Evidently, the Turks are being spotted, for at Yenishir, where no doubt they have many observation posts, which are in telephonic communication with Chanak, further up the straits, which is in turn in telephonic communication with Turkish headquarters on Achi, what more ideal conditions for laying their guns could be wished for? It is fortunate for us that their artillery and ammunition are scarce. 
were the full complement of artillery against us that the Germans would provide to an army of the same strength as that of the Turks, I think that we should, as things have developed now, pack up and be off within one week, and not even the dear little seventy-fives could save us. The field bakery is in working order now, in a little gully further up the coast, and we are having most excellent bread each day. Not a full ration, about forty percent, being made up by the biscuits. It consists of three bakery detachments of six bakery sections each, a total of twenty-four ovens, and is capable of making bread for sixty thousand men. The ovens are made of curved metal. The troughs are in a large marquee, where all the mixing of the flour and ferments is done. The bread supplied on the whole is good, but, of course, under the conditions in which the men are working, it is difficult to turn out bread of the quality that one expects in London. Baking goes on practically the whole of the twenty-four hours. The whole bakery is under cover, and cannot be seen in any way by the Turk, though the gully in which it has been placed can be shelled, should the Turk become aware of its presence. I dine with Ritchie at 7.30 p.m. in his dugout under our cliff, between our position and the bakery. Five other officers are there. Amongst them is Major Huskisson, a charming jippy, Army Service Corps man, who is in charge of the main supply depot here, and also a man who was in the River Clyde at the landing, and who saw Colonel Carrington Smith killed. Ritchie is officer commanding a labor corps, camped on the side of the cliff around his dugout. We play bridge after dinner, and I actually have a whiskey, first game of bridge I have had since we landed, and it is weird playing in such surroundings. Outside, a perfect moonlight night. Elsewhere I have mentioned the Isle of Imbros by night, but really it is next to impossible to describe the beauty of these Greek islands unless one is a poet or a painter. To my mind, Imbros is the most beautiful of any of the isles in reach of the peninsula. But tonight, as it seemed, she surpassed herself in beauty. The sea lies like a sheet of liquid silver under the rays of the moon. There, like a precious gem, lies Imbros, sleeping on the face of the waters. Her deep valleys and gorges running down to the sea are aswim with purple shadows, and her rugged mountain crests stand out violet and clear-cut against the star-spangled velvet of the skies. Her feet are wrapped about as with a snowy drapery, woven of the little foaming crests of lazy wavelets lapping around her. From behind her the feathery night clouds appear to swathe themselves about her, and her mountain peaks seem like a coronet set upon the dusky brow of some beautiful goddess of the night. All is silent, and she sleeps peacefully upon the waters, awaiting the coming of the fiery god of the morning, who, dashing across the sky in his chariot of flame, will awaken her with a burning kiss, driving the purple shadows from her valleys and filling them with a swimming golden glory which shall make her seem even more lovely by day than by night. Truly is she a goddess upon the waters, a rival almost of Aphrodite herself. As I go back to bed, walking back along the foot of the cliff, rifle fire is rattling away on our left. I climb up to our bivvy, being challenged several times, and turn into bed. May 27th. Woke at 6.30 this morning, feeling very refreshed, and find it is a beautiful morning, 
The view is perfect from our biscuit box, Bivy. I am just drowsily thinking about getting up when a gun from HMS Majestic fires. This is followed immediately by the report of an explosion, and Carver says, Good Lord, she is torpedoed. We rush out and see the green, smooth wake of a torpedo in a straight line, horizontal with our bivy, starting from a point immediately in front of us. HMS Majestic is about 800 yards to our left, immediately in front of W Beach, and I see her, massive and strong, bristling with guns, and crowded with men in white, slowly tilting over with a list to her port side. Men are doubling on deck to their places in perfect order, with no shouting or panic. Then, evidently, the order, every man for himself, is given, for I see a figure leap into the water, making a big splash, then another and another. It is like jumping off the side of a house, until the sea around is dotted by bobbing heads of men swimming. Slowly she tilts over, and men clamber onto the side above the torpedo nets, which are out. As many as possible get away from the nets, for they make a trap. By this time, after only four minutes, she is surrounded by destroyers, trawlers, pinnaces, and small boats, and with perfectly wonderful and amazing efficiency, they systematically pick up the struggling figures in the water. One after another men continue to leap, while the big ship lists, yet there are some amongst whom are several officers, who stand on the side calmly waiting, and some still on the platform above the torpedo nets. My glasses are glued on these men. I see them plainly in every detail, and almost the expression on their faces, as they stand on this platform, with their hands behind them, holding on to the side of the ship. I see an officer in the center looking anxiously to the right and the left, shouting directions. A man at the end manages to clamber to his left and slides painfully over pipe stays and the usual fittings on the side of a battleship, falling with an awkward thud in the water, and another and another follow him. Then, after six minutes, she begins to list quicker and quicker, and the remaining men on the torpedo net platform still hang on. The nets curl up into themselves. These men are now horizontal to the ship, for she is now well on her side. The nets fling themselves into the air with a horrid curl, and disappear from view with these brave officers and men underneath. Can they dive and get free? The emerald green of the keel plates appears, and in two minutes she turns turtle, her bows remaining highest and her stern beneath water. As she turns, men run, slip, and slide into the water, and at the finish, eight minutes after, her bows are showing and about fifty feet of the bottom of the ship above water at an angle. Finally, one man is left on the green slippery keel, and he, evidently not being able to swim, calmly takes his jacket off, sits down, and, if you please, takes off his boots, and walking slowly into the water, plunges in, having the good fortune to grab a life-boy, and is hauled to a tug. The submarine has been spotted, and torpedo destroyers give chase, circling round and round, but all signs of her have disappeared. 
The destroyers, six in all, make bigger and bigger sweeps when the sound of firing is heard out at sea, and about four miles to the east of Imbros I can see a big French battleship going hell for leather towards the island. She is firing astern, and immediately all six destroyers put out to sea as fast as they can steam. The French ship then fires an extra big shell astern, which explodes with great violence in the water. The destroyers coming up, she gives up firing and makes off to safety. Later, no news as yet of the submarine, and we await with a little anxiety further developments. The survivors coming ashore were looked after by the Tommies, given new clothes, breakfast, and rum, and seemed none the worse for their adventure. One said, This is the third dash time I have been sunk, and I'm getting a bit fed up. One quickly becomes a philosopher and fatalist on this peninsula, and the fact that we are all atomic to each other keeps our spirits up. I hear that most of the crew are saved, including the admiral and the captain. About forty have lost their lives, and I am sure amongst this number are those unfortunate brave men who stood calmly waiting for almost certain and immediate death, or the bare chance of continuing to live longer, on that trap of a torpedo net platform. I stroll down to the beach and talk to naval officers about the loss, but they appear as optimistic as ever, tell me she was an old boat, of not much value nowadays, built as long ago as 1894, and that when once Achibaba is taken, the fleet will get to work and make a dash up the straits. The scene is just the same this beautiful evening, but instead of a dignified, strong battleship in our midst, there remains her green boughs, like the head of an enormous whale, peeping out of the water. 7 a.m. Taub flies over, drops bomb, two men killed. May 28th. Go up to brigade headquarters this morning. Delightful canter along West Crithia Road. I pass many camps, or rather lines of trenches, on either side of the road, serving as camps. Just at this time of year, crickets are very numerous. It is difficult to spot them, but they make a sound with their chirping not unlike the concerted song of a host of sparrows. I notice it more particularly at Pink Farm in the early morning, and sometimes at night on the cliffs by the sea. I find that brigade headquarters have moved forward a little to the left, and have dug nice quarters into the side of a small hill. They were flooded out of their previous headquarters by a cloudburst, a curious phenomenon. We did not feel it at all on the beaches, and yet a few miles inland they experienced a veritable flood. 5 p.m. I ride to Morto Bay, across country, through the white pillars, and have a ripping bathe. It is a beautiful spot, just up the straits, three miles from the shores of Asia, flanked on its left by high ground, on which is Detat's battery, and on its right by the high wooded ground, behind Sedel Bar. Perfect bathing, all sand, and gently sloping until one wades out of one's depth. Plenty of French troops bathing as well. All this side of the peninsula is in the hands of the French. As we are bathing, one shell comes over from Achi and bursts near the white pillars. 7 p.m. Arriving back at W Beach, I can see about half a dozen destroyers bombarding a few villages on Imbros for all they are worth. 
Lord, are we at war with Greece now? May 29th. A beautiful day, but there are no battleships lying off, and but one or two supply ships. The absence of shipping makes a great contrast to the busy scenes amongst the fleet and transports of a week ago, and their absence has a depressing effect on us all. Several destroyers are patrolling up and down the coast and from Asia to Imbros. All is quiet on the front, but reinforcements steadily arrive, and a continued steady stream of ordnance stores and supplies is unloaded from the supply ships into lighters, which are then towed by small tugs to the piers, alongside which they are made fast. There the stores are taken over by royal engineers, ordnance, or supply officers, who, with groups of laborers, unload them from the lighters onto the piers. Greek labor then handles the stores along the piers to the beach, where they are dumped on the sand. Then officers with clerks check the stores with the figures stated on their vouchers, and Greeks load them onto wagons and mule carts, which then drive off up the newly made steep roads of the beach to the Royal Engineers Park, just halfway up the beach, to the Ordnance Depot on the cliff to the right of the beach looking inland, or to the rapidly growing main supply depot, which will soon make a splendid target for the Turkish gunners, on the high ground at the back of the beach. At times we find that the main supply depot is unable to satisfy all our indents, and in consequence we have to go down onto the beach and draw from the piles of supplies which have accumulated there faster than it has been found possible to cart them away. But never on any occasion do we find that our indents have to be refused from both the main supply depot and the beach. For the Army Supply Corps out here, where there are difficulties that have never been experienced before in previous campaigns, such as transporting by sea from Southampton or Alexandria over a sea rapidly becoming infested with submarines, unloading into lighters offshore in a rough sea, with the lighters bumping and tossing roughly against the ship's sides, towing the lighters alongside flimsy piers, always under a constant work of construction or repair, and finally the arduous work of manhandling from the lighters to the beach, carting from the beach to the main depot, and thence to trenches, guns, and camps, with a daily ration of Turkish shells to dodge, are organizing the feeding of the men in the trenches, the man at the gun, and we behind, punctiliously as our troops are fed in France. Whatever unforeseen difficulty arises, breakfast and the succeeding daily meals are always ready at the scheduled hours for general and private, officers, chargers, and mules. One hitch, and our army here may have to go on half rations, or no food at all. An army moves on its stomach. True, we are not moving, but if our stomachs are not regularly and wisely fed, we shall rapidly have to move, and then in the opposite way to our objective. The Army Service Corps officer who was at dinner at Ritchie's the other night is with me on the beach, and as I walk with him to the main supply depot, he contrasts the circumstances here with those in France under which the Army Service Corps works. Pointing to the pier and stacks of supplies on the beach, he says, There you have your Havre and base. The wagons, limbers, and mule carts are, he tells me, 
the equivalent of the railway supply pack trains running every day from Havre to the various railheads behind the lines. We arrive at the main supply depot, and he says, We are now at one of these railheads, but hardly ever does a railhead in France get shelled, and never one of them regularly and continually as this one will be when these stacks of biscuits grow a bit higher. Pointing to our divisional depot of four little dumps, one for each of our groups, just three hundred yards away from us, he says, there is your refilling point, usually two miles or more from a railhead, and then seldom under shell fire. In our case, we are actually behind railhead. An officer on duty at the main supply depot, who has been up to Anzac, as the landing of the Australians up the coast is now called, joins in our conversation and tells us that actually on the beach at Anzac, spent bullets continually fly over from the enemy trenches, adding, fancy spent bullets flying around the depot at Havre. I ride up to brigade headquarters in the afternoon and have tea, and am called on to supply them with the latest beach rumors, which I glean each morning from our dump and from our naval officers on shore. Coming back, just in front of Pink Farm, I stop at the mess of the Royal Scots, who are in a trench camp. Their mess is very well dug in, and I am surprised how comfortable it has been made. They are very hospitable, and have an overflowing larder of unheard-of luxuries in this land of bare necessity. Old Steel, the quartermaster, is there, and presses Turkish delight onto me. As we sit talking, shrapnel whizzes over and bursts behind us, fifty yards to our left, trying to get l battery i hear the account of the part the royal scots had taken in the last little scrap and am told that one of their sergeants who was a man of good position in edinburgh in civil life was found dead lying with a semicircle of five dead turks around him their heads smashed in with the butt end of his rifle he must have come of a fighting stock yet never anticipated he would end his life on the battlefield May 30th. I am on duty at 6 a.m. at the main supply depot, drawing the day's supplies to our divisional dump. Each of the four supply officers takes it in turn, so that the duty falls on me once in four days. It is a lovely fresh morning, and after signing for the supplies, I light a cigarette and stroll back to my bivvy, feeling ready for breakfast. I meet Millward on the way, who now lives in a tent near the depot. He was our naval landing officer on the Dongola on April 25th, and is now one of the naval landing officers on the beach. He tells me that he is about to go back to join his original ship, somewhere in the North Sea, that he does not want to go a bit, and this side of the war is far more interesting. He also says that the piers are going to be constructed so as to be proof against the bad weather that will come in the winter. Ships will be sunk to form breakwaters. The winter? I exclaim. Heavens, we shall be in Constantinople long before then. Achi will be ours by June 30th, and then we have them at our mercy. Millward says it is wise, however, to be ready for a winter. Winter? Lord, what a long time ahead it seems. This afternoon I ride with Carver, Woodbridge, Foley, and Tull with orderlies to Morto Bay, and on the way have a delightful cross-country canter. I have difficulty, though, in making my mare jump trenches. She jumped hurdles at Warwick Racecourse like a bird. 
had a delightful bathe while the French Senegalese were doing likewise. Absolutely cold black figures, laughing and playing like children. No firing from Asiatic side. Their guns evidently silenced by us. Only three miles across, most beautiful view, with mountains and plains of Troy in the background. This place will make a fine watering place after the war for some enterprising capitalist. In the background, beautiful wooded country, with the stately white pillars standing up, the whole place this side of the pillars a large French camp. I like the French. They are charming. What a difference this place is now to what it was in those first few days, when we had to toil up at night through the Turkish cemetery, past the croaking frogs, with fears of snipers. May 31st. A perfect day. I ride up with Foley to my brigade in the morning, and there meet Captain Wood, the adjutant of the Essex, and dear old Ruby Revel of the same regiment. The mess room at brigade headquarters, though dug in the side of a small hill, is like a country summer house, and this morning it is very hard to realize that we are at war. Crickets are chirping in the bushes, and pretty little chaffinches with bright-colored feathers hop about amongst the trees. I look through a powerful telescope at the Turkish trenches, and it seems almost as though I could throw a stone at them. The precipitous slopes of Achi Baba appear in vivid detail. As for the Turkish first line, I feel that if I put my foot out, I shall tread on its parapet. Yet I see not a sign of life, and all is perfectly quiet. I think that a big attack is coming off in a few days now, and great preparations appear to be going on. Many reinforcements have arrived, and we are almost up to full strength again. In fact, several of those who were slightly wounded on the first day have actually returned, fit and sound, to the firing line. Riding back, Foley and I call at his brigade headquarters and see Major Lucas, the brigade major, and later Brigadier General Marshall comes in. Their headquarters, situated some 300 yards behind Pink Farm, but to the right, looking towards Achi, is built in an even more beautiful spot than the headquarters of the 88th. In fact, it can only be described as a most beautiful natural garden, and the quarters are composed simply of summer houses nestling under trees with flowers and meadow grass growing in beautiful confusion all around. Bullets just fall short of this spot and shells do not drop near, for it is away from any target. I call it the Royal Naval Division Armored Car Camp afterwards, just halfway back between Pink Farm and the beach, off the West Crithia Road, to look up a friend that I hear is with them, but learn that he has not yet landed. Four armored cars are dug into what look like deep horse stalls of earth, beautiful Rolls-Royce cars, and I hear that they are to go into action in the battle which is thought to be coming off in a few days. 2 p.m. This afternoon it is so hot that I strip to the waist and ride on the cliff. A few transports are in. Minesweepers in pairs, with little sails aft, are on duty at the entrance, cruising slowly and methodically to and fro, joined to each other by a sunken torpedo net and woe unto a submarine that should run into that net. It will quickly meet with an untimely end. Its base will hear no more news of it, and its destruction will be kept secret by the Navy. Destroyers are on patrol right out to sea, 
One battleship can just be seen away towards Lemnos. Work on the beach goes on steadily. Engineers are hard at work constructing a new pier, which will serve as a breakwater as well. Stones for this purpose are being quarried from the side of the cliff. A light railway is in course of construction round the beach and along the road at the foot of this cliff and up to the depot. June 1st, 11.30. Road to headquarters, leaving my mare at Pink Farm, where I meet General Doran, our new brigadier with whom I walk to headquarters. Coming back along West Crithia Road, met Matthias, brigade veterinarian. Two shells whistle over us. Matthias says, Here comes a shell, to which I reply, It's come and gone, dear boy, as they burst plonk in the middle of the road that we have to pass along. We make a detour and ride back over country. Four officers just come from England, arrive and have lunch with us. 3 p.m. Ride with Foley to Morto Bay for a bathe bay full of French and Senegalese bathing. As we sat undressing, one big burly fellow came up to Foley and said, Speak English, how do you do? And held out his hands. Foley was so taken aback that he shook hands. He then turned to me and, showing his teeth, said, Tobacco. Being rather afraid that he was going to bite me, I quickly took out my pouch and gave him a handful. Then a sergeant, also a nigger, came running up and ordered him off using most fearful language, apparently, and away he went, running like mad. They are fine-looking men, Morto Bay looking very beautiful. I can imagine this a fine watering place after the war, with promenade, gardens, hotels, golf links, etc. Achibaba looked a beautiful bronze color, with patches of green. The Dardanelles show a deep blue color, gradually blending into the purple of the Asiatic side, with its background of mountains. At the entrance, little minesweepers are on duty. The beach is full of naked black and white figures bathing, and the country in the background is dotted with French camps. The firing line in the distance and our guns popping off at intervals, and enemy shells now and again whistling overhead. Such is the environment in which we have our bathe. Foley suggests riding back through Sedel Bar, which we do, and we are fortunate in doing so, as eight shells, beautifully placed, exploded just over the road that we otherwise should have taken, and at about the time that we should have been passing along it. 10.30 p.m. Bit of the Turkish attack going on. Heavy rifle fire. 75's very angry and beating all known records of rapid fire. Their song sings me to sleep. I am not afraid of shells when I am sleeping. End of section 8